We have a fabulous class today, a fabulous lesson. And here to start the introduction is Paul. Well, we continue today with our Lenten series, the I Am Statements of, uh, of Jesus. <coughs> Next week, Ron Peterson will do the lesson, I Am the uh, Way, of the Truth and the Light. And uh, uh, today, uh, we are welcoming out of retirement <laughs> Charlotte Johnson, and to introduce her, uh, uh, the guy that lives with her. <laughs> this woman. <laughs> after a few years to Delaware. Then she went to Texas, which she spent most of her life in Georgia. Her father was an engineer for DuPont. She came to Georgia and graduated at the Richmond Academy and came to LaGrange College. That's where we met. We dated a couple of years. I thought there were good years. <laughs> I've been in love with her for 54 years, and we've been married 52, so there's years. <laughs> She's a wonderful mother of three children, a gracious, caring grandmother of six children. She's a good teacher. She had a double major in science and religion. Back in the 50s, her thesis was there's no conflict between science and religion under God. She taught high school at College Park, high school, and then later she had her own business as a businesswoman on Canton Street called Charlotte's Color Corner. And she had that for 10 years. She did what she wanted to do. She said she was going to do that. <laughs> and she did. She's a excellent person to live with. Out of all the options I had. <laughs> and she has been reasonably happy. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light here takes the light here takes us back to the very beginning, Genesis 1-3, when God spoke light into the world. Let there be light, and there was light. And God said that it was good. All right, now in John, Jesus speaks two life-giving sentences about, one, who he is, and two, who we can be, when we have a relationship with him. I want you to think just a minute back on your own 
walk and think about the moment that you can remember that you realized that Jesus was in your heart rather than somebody you heard about, a historical figure with historical events. But he became part of your life, your heart. The Holy Spirit was, was within. And then I want you to think that when he says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Does that mean that we'll never have troubles? Think back now of the most recent trouble could be darkness in your life. Financial struggles, health issues, family situations. The most recent one, maybe. We've all had them. You heard many of those struggles even relayed this morning. My question for you to think about is, how did you deal with those in regard with your relationship with Jesus? And that's what makes the darkness non-darkness, makes it light. You're reviewing just a moment. We're continuing the I am sayings. And the I am part of that, of this one today, throws us back to Exodus 3.14, where Moses was hearing God's voice from the burning bush. And he said, I am who I am. Now this is a, this means absolute, I think I wrote it up here, absolute eternal existence. That helps me to understand what is I am who I am. And this is really a stunning statement to the Jews because here Jesus is saying, I am the light. And for them, I am is God. And he's relating himself to God. And the light for them was the Torah. So they already are beginning, and this lesson is full of controversy from the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, and to what Jesus is saying and doing. The differences are apparent, and you know them. I feel like I'm speaking to the choir, because this class is so founded in the Christian faith. But still, I learn, and we can all learn, from, from such a, a study as this. The Synoptic Gospels, um, are different from John's. They are more a chronology of the events in Jesus' life, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies and climaxing with Easter. And the Gospel of John is a more of a thematic approach where there are many miracles or miraculous signs and um, they weave what Jesus, who Jesus says he is with the same, that is, he, John, the writer, does this weaving, and he has an approach that is different from those of the synoptic gospels. He emphasizes the divinity of Jesus more than the historical. There's no birth uh, experience 
Only that it begins with Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, in the very beginning. And he was with God from the very beginning. There was, there's no baptism in the Gospel of John. So it's more thematic, not historical events like the other three Gospels. And there are some I am not statements from John the Baptist. Who does, they don't go, John does not go through the baptism, but John as a precursor to Jesus, John the Baptist, is a different person from John the Apostle. There's an earthy comp component to each of these spiritual sayings. We, we heard uh, so beautifully from Paul last week about fact that I am the bread and it talks about the physical need and how Jesus fulfilled the physical need but also the spiritual needs of our hearts and souls. The Gospel of John interesting and I had not thought about it before Jesus goes to Jerusalem several times in the Gospel of John and in the in the Synoptic Gospels, he only goes to Jerusalem that last time in um, getting ready for his death. And so this, uh, I am the light of the world saying, takes place on one of those visits to Jerusalem. And it's very appropriate on the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is, which is when it takes place. During the Feast of Tabernacles, it was like a Thanksgiving, number one, for the Jewish people, it was like a time of thanksgiving for the for God's work in giving the crop. And it was like in September, October, during harvest, at the end of harvest, uh, before winter sets in. So they, as one Messianic Jewish writer, thinks that the Puritan settlers to America based the first Thanksgiving on this type of on this Jewish celebration because they were steeped in Hebrew history. Secondly, the Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate the uh, Hebrews' 40-year trek in the desert and, and give thanksgiving for how God oversaw that experience. And you remember the saying that he provided them a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night when they needed to be able to see during the night. And that cloud during the day was to protect them from the, the heat of the sun in the desert. I used to think of the wilderness as being forest, woods, but no, it's desert. When, when you go to the Holy Land, you, you see that. It's total desert, and and so they needed that cloud of um, that cloud, pillar of cloud for their uh, traveling during the day. Okay, and then at night the pillar of fire. So to so to commemorate that, they came to the temple area, the court of women. The outer court is the court of Gentiles. The next one the court of women, and that's where they had this Feast of Tabernacles set up where they implant 45 feet menorahs all the way around it, and if you heard the sermon last Sunday, 
Mike even showed a picture of what it might have looked like. In my mind, from my study, the menorahs were all the way around it. And they put them in huge 30-gallon jars of olive oil. And they did this on the first day of this festival. The festival was eight days long. It ended on the next Sabbath. Started on the one Sabbath, ended on the next Sabbath. And on the night, beginning of the Sabbath at, at dusk, they lit those menorahs, and it was a blazing fire for miles, it could be seen for miles around. They danced and sang and celebrated uh, the glory of God in, in, at this time. And this is when Jesus, against this blazing display of candlelight, here is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Now, I'd like to read to you William Barclay's paraphrase of that same verse. Jesus is saying, You have seen the blaze of the temple illumination piercing the darkness of the night. I am the light of the world. For those who follow me, there will be light not only for one night, but for all of your life. The brilliant temple light will flicker and die. I am the light which lasts forever. Well, in verse 13, following this, 8, 12, in verses 13 through 18, the Pharisees begin to respond to what Jesus had said. They say, you're appearing as your own witness. This is not valid. The Torah is our law. And in fact, it's our life. And you need two witnesses to, for your statement to be valid. Jesus responds in verse 15. In your law, the testimony of two is valid. I testify for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And the Pharisees say, where is your Father? Jesus said, if you knew me, you'd know my Father. He spoke these words in the temple area, near the court, near the offering places in the court of women. Yet, and the Bible says, no one seized him at this point, because his time had not come. And that's kind of a mystifying thing that is spoken throughout the um, gospel. And I have written down at the bottom on this chart two Greek words for time. We use one word. You know, over and over we've had lessons that say there are four Greek words for love, and we use it for I love my my dog, I love my cat, and I love Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are two words for time, and one of them, the first one is chronos, which is chronological time, like what time am I supposed to be finished with this lesson? And then the other one is kairos, which is a variable, but a crucial time that we're speaking of, like retirement. You know, we speak of <coughs> before retirement and after retirement. And we got the news this week that Trooper Jones is going to retire at the end of this year. So that kind of time is what Jesus is saying, or what they're saying, because his time had not yet come. Actually, it's John who is writing these words. And so they didn't seize him because it was not his time. All right, then Jesus says, I am going away and you'll look for me. 
you'll die in your sins. You can't go where I go. And then they are, it's almost humorous, the response of the of the Pharisees at that point. They say, well, is he going to kill himself? What does he mean? He's going away and we won't, we won't know where he's going. The image of light and darkness in this, in this, in this scripture is a, a, called dualism as employed by John in this gospel. He uses um, light and darkness, slave and free, good and evil. And it's a good thing to be talking about during Lent. The, dark, the word darkness is a time in Lent when we are uh, groping through soul-searching shadows before plunging into the deep darkness of the Good Friday. You know, I'm so moved by the Good Friday service when we, we slam the book, the Bible closed at the very end, and we walk out in complete and utter darkness and silence. It's also a reminder of the ninth plague in Egypt back in Exodus 10, where God was sending a darkness over the Egyptians that could be felt. And that, that's the kind of darkness we're talking about here. A darkness that's more than just dark, but it could be felt because they couldn't see each other. Nobody could go anywhere during those three days, uh, the ninth plague. Yet the Israelites had light everywhere they lived during that time. So we know we have a physical need for light. Uh, we, we complain on, on drab days if, there's, if there are many. And uh, so our bodies need light. We need the vitamin D from the sunlight. And also, plants need light. You know that if you put a plant where the, it doesn't get enough sunshine, it's not going to grow like the ones that, that need light. The word light is associated with God in Jewish thought and language. For example, in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. In Isaiah, the Lord will be your everlasting light. In Job 29, by his light I walk through darkness. In Micah, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Alright, so we move on toward John chapter 9. At the end of this wonderful uh, Feast of Tabernacles celebration, it's still the Sabbath day. See, the Sabbath starts at 6, well, I say 6 p.m., at dusk on Friday night, and it goes into until dusk on Saturday. So on Saturday morning, when it's light, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple. And in verse 1 of, of John 9, they walk out, and a man is born, a man who was born blind is outside the temple in an area where beggars were allowed to beg. And when people coming into the temple hopefully would give them some money, um, the disciples immediately asked Jesus in verse 2, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he, he was born blind. And Jesus, I feel like ushering in the new covenant, said neither. But their mentality came from the... Um, the place where in the scripture it's in Exodus 20 is part of the Ten Commandments where God tells Moses you shall have no other God <coughs> make no idols to worship 
because I'm a jealous God, and I will punish the children for the sins of the fathers for three or four generations. So they get the idea that this man is born blind, somebody sinned. But Jesus, again, Jesus' answer is, neither. This happened that the work of God may display, they may be displayed in his life. Now, still, that doesn't answer to me, because I don't feel like God caused the man to be blind just so that his glory, God's glory, may be seen through Jesus. But I believe Jesus used the, the experience to let God's glory be seen. And this is one of his miraculous signs. The same thing is stated by John in, I think it's the 11th chapter, when Jesus raises Lazarus. And, and Jesus is delayed from coming to the scene, and Lazarus goes ahead and dies. And Jesus, John says in that in those verses, this happened that God may be glorified. And I think God uses these events uh, for, to be glorified in this, in this particular situation. So, in verse 6, uh, Jesus spit, used spittle on the on dirt, from the earth, and that's kind of a reminder of the Genesis 2 creation of man, using the dust of the earth, and he put the mud on the blind man's eyes and told him to go wash, and he, the pool of Siloam was right nearby. It was deliberately right near where the beggars were allowed to beg, so to take that word and that sound of that sight there. But that's all this man could do in this day and time. So much progress is, is made for those who are handicapped. But they just sat and begged. He went to the pool of Siloam, and the scripture says he washed the blood from his eyes, and he went home seeing. Four little words. But what a time of rejoicing this should have been. But it it turns out that the Pharisees are going to undergo a crime scene investigation because there, there, there's so much question in their mind about who he is and what he, what he thinks he's doing here. Robert Kaiser, the author of Invitation to John, which, by the way, is a short-term disciple Bible study, my small group did this study, and it was wonderful. Just on the book of John, and it's twelve-week study. He uses as uh, as an illustration here that he can sort of understand what it was like for this blind man to all of a sudden have sight. He remembers when he was in the eighth grade. He was so tall that he was invited to be on the basketball team at the school. And so he was playing basketball, and he could not see the scoreboard. So he would have to ask his um, team players what, what the score is. And then he had another friend who, was, who had correction for his nearsightedness with glasses, and he went to the movies with his friend. And he asked the friend if he could just look through his glasses at the movies, and he could see so much better. So, of course, his family finally uh, had him... It's so easy to overlook physical 
blindness, so to speak. Um, we did that with our own son. We overlooked his um, far-sighted condition and his lazy eye. We saw that eye going over, but we kept thinking, you know, you just don't think my child has this problem. And so we kept waiting and hoping it would straighten up. And finally, his kindergarten teacher pointed it out to us. Do you realize your son is cross-eyed practice? I mean, he wasn't cross-eyed. It would go over certain ways he looked. And so we took him to the eye doctor, and he was, his vision in that eye was 20-100 at age 5. And that was, that was one of those devastating times in our family life. It could have been darkness. But you work your way through it when you have when you have the relationship with Jesus Christ and the strength that comes from that. Um, so here is this man who wonderfully received his sight, and some of his even friends immediately ensued here with arguments, and they're talking to each other. Is that the man that was completely blind, begging over you? And he overhears it and says, "Yes, I'm the man." <coughs> Well, how were your eyes open? Verse 11. A man called Jesus, and he goes through, put blood on my eyes, and then sent me to the pool below him to wash. And I could see. And then they asked in verse 12, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees, because they knew. These are friends now. Other Jews gathered around. Take the man to the Pharisees, because they're aware that something is un unusual here. This man called Jesus, and he's doing this, and he did it on the Sabbath day. We better let the Pharisees look at this situation. So um, they asked him again, how did you receive your sight? He goes through the same explanation. And they tell him then, he's not, this is verse 16, he's not from God because he obeyed, disobeyed the Sabbath. But then some of the other Pharisees said, but how can a sinner do such a miraculous thing? So they were kind of divided on how they were feeling about this. Verse 17, to the man, they asked, what do you say about him? And the man at that point says, I think he's a prophet. Then the Jews still didn't believe him. They keep digging, crime scene investigation. They sent for his parents. They got the parents to come in. Is this, was your son born blind? Yes, he was. Well, how is it that he now can see? Verses 20 through 23, the parents say, He is our son. He was born blind, but we don't know how he, he received his sight. They're afraid because they're, they might be kicked out of the synagogue if they agree with and tend to believe that Jesus is a doing has done a miraculous deed and the fact that he did it on the Sabbath day. So in verse 24, the Pharisees summoned the man again and they say to him this time, you need to give glory to God. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he says, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they ask him back in verse 26, what did he do to you? He says, I told you. Why don't you listen? Why don't you believe me? 
Do you want to become his disciples? Is that why you want to know? <laughs> you can imagine that made them just <clears throat> They hurled insults at him. They said, you are his disciples. We are disciples of no Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. We don't even know where this fellow came from. This man had a, has a remarkable defense of that insult. He said in verses 30 through 32, You don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but does listen to a godly man who does his will. Nobody has heard of the opening, the opening eyes of a man born blind. If this man, meaning Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. You were steeped in sin at birth. This is the Pharisees responding in verse 34. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Throw him out. And they did throw him out. Then Jesus outside heard what had happened. And he asked the man online, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, Who is he? This is the man who gained his sight, saying back to Jesus, Who is the Son of Man? Tell me so I may believe. You have now seen him. Jesus responded in verse 37. You, he is speaking with you. And here his, his spiritual eyes were opened. And the light dawned. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. Go down and worship. His moment of insight happened this morning. So this is kind of a gradual thing. And it had to be that way with us in our own individual religious experiences. We, we learn about it. We hear it. We begin to say, as, as the blind man did, I believe he's a prophet. And then this wonderful defense of him. And then... Lord, I believe. So, I'd like to conclude with this statement. As Christians who believe Jesus is the light of the world, are we living with the assurance that God will supply all of our needs as stated by Paul in, the, in Philippians 4 verse 19? Or do we tend to fear and falter as non-believers in much of the world? Um, and do we need to change those words saying, My God will supply all needs according to how Wall Street is doing. <laughs> the banking system, the economy, my health, my family situation. Or can we say with Paul, um, he will provide all of my needs. Has your light produced spiritual light for others? Have you helped anyone else's eyes to be opened? Think about that. And let us pray. Lord, you have given us the light of light. Help us as we seek to show it to others. May, may we never 
Now only walk with me. Walk in darkness. Through Jesus Christ, the light of life, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.